Welcome to Kidney Essentials, a podcast for medical students, residents, and all nephrocurious practitioners at the University of Colorado and beyond. My name is Sarah Young. I tweet at at Renal Critic. I'm Sophia Ambruso. I tweet at at Sophia underscore kidney. And my name is Judy Blaine, and I tweet at at Judy Blaine too. Okay, we are going to jump right into it this podcast and start off with our case. So um, in this this podcast, we're going to review a lot of ideas and concepts that we've touched on in previous podcasts. So this is hopefully going to bring together a bunch of previous ideas. So our case is a 68-year-old woman who presents to the emergency room feeling unwell since her shoulder surgery. She had a serum sodium of 121. She was vomiting up bilious material, but had a negative abdominal exam. She was not hypotensive, but thought to be volume depleted, so was given one liter of normal saline in the emergency room. It was recommended that the patient be admitted to the hospital, but she refused. Aside from the sodium of 121, she had a blood pressure of 148 over 100, a pulse of 87, and her labs revealed a sodium of 121, a potassium of 3.4, chloride of 83, bicarbonate of 24, BUN of 11, and creatinine of 0.74. She had a urine sodium of 216 and a urine osm of 586. Judy, do you think that this patient's volume depleted? No, I definitely think she was not volume depleted. And the reason for that is that she was not hypotensive. Her blood pressure was 148 over 100. She was also not tachycardic with a pulse of 87, which is in the normal range. In addition, her urine sodium was actually really high. And often with volume depletion, um, you can see a really low urine sodium. Great. Sophie, can you sort of review for our audience how you assess volume status in a patient when you're seeing them? Yeah. So, I mean, first, as Judy, Judy had already alluded to, looking at vitals can be very telling. Um, number one, patient's blood pressure was high, pulse was normal. Oftentimes, we see people who are hypotensive, so low blood pressure, and tachycardic, um, so a fast heart rate. Um, the other things, just kind of going from the head down, things that I look for, I look at someone's mucosa, if, it's, if their mucosa is dry, that's suggestive that they're volume depleted. Look at neck veins. If neck veins are flat, we think volume, de- volume depletion, whereas if they're plump, we think maybe volume overloaded. Um, other things, you can listen to lungs. Um, if you hear crackles, uh, oftentimes that's a sign of pulmonary edema. And then you can always go down to the legs. Uh, that's sometimes where people go first, but can be um, a little deceiving depending on if the patient's been in bed the entire time. But in any case, you look for lower extremity edema. Yeah, so Sophie, you mentioned that you start at the top and go down. I start at the mm-hmm. bottom and go up. <laughs> <laughs> they all work. <laughs> um, so Judy, the ER did not send off a serum osm, but what would you anticipate the osm to be? So as we mentioned in a previous podcast, in general, the um, plasma osmolality or serum osms are roughly twice the serum sodium. So in her case, it should be 2 times 121 or 242. Sophie, can you remind our audience why sending off a serum osm is so important? Yeah, I mean, the most thing, most important thing that you want to rule out is a hyperosmolar hyponatremia. Most common cause for that is hyperglycemia. Um, there is a less common entity of pseudohyponatremia that I've actually yet to see in my own case, so I'm not going to focus on that. 
Um, but those are the two things that we would want to rule out, rule out at the get-go. Great. So they did send off a cortisol and a TSH, and they were normal. Judy, what is your working diagnosis at this time based on the information that we have? So based on all the information and labs that we have, the most likely diagnosis is something called SIADH, or the syndrome of inappropriate excretion of antidiuretic hormone. And simply what this means is that um, in this case, she is excreting ADH, but there is actually no physiologic reason for her to do that. So it's normal and physiologic to secrete ADH when you have reduced effective arterial circulating blood volume, so your kidneys are seeing less volume, or in a hyperosmolar state. But as we know, she's not volume depleted. There's no reason for her to be hyperosmolar. So there's no reason for her to be excreting a lot of ADH and having a very, very concentrated urine. In fact, with a really low serum sodium, she should be trying to pee out a lot of water. She should have a really, really dilute urine. So with a serum sodium that is well less than 130, her urine sodium should be less, uh, her urine osmolality should be less than 100. Great. Um, so Sophie, what are some of the causes of SIADH that you like to sort of run through your brain when you're seeing someone with that diagnosis? Yeah, so I'll get the idiopathic SIADH out of the way uh, when I don't have any other cause. I think the one that everybody usually tries to hang their hat on is any sort of lung parenchymal um, process. So a pneumonia, a CHF, although that one actually doesn't really count. I'll take that one out and throw it away. Um, uh, a COPD. Um, other ones to think about is a perineoplastic syndrome for a small cell. I always have to think about that one. Small cell carcinoma in the lung. Um, other ones to think about are any psycho, oh, my brain's starting to go on me, um, SSRI, so our antidepressants, <laughs> and any other older antipsychotics are usually more common, or at least used to be more common, but I can't really pronounce some of those old ones anyways. And then what was the last one we were talking about that has, has slipped my mind? So pain and nausea. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, pain and nausea, under-recognized, certainly, particularly our, our post-operative patients who are getting maybe a little bit of normal saline in the vein, and they have some pain and nausea, and they've got sort of a low-grade hyponatremia. All right, so basically, things that are happening in the brain, things that are happening in the lungs are the two main things. So usually these patients get, uh, at a bare minimum, a chest x-ray, maybe even a chest CT and a brain scan. Okay, so Sophie, back to you again, because you haven't spoken enough yet this podcast. Um, what do you think will happen to this patient with a urinosum of 586 who gets a liter of normal saline in the ER? Oh, Sarah, I'm so glad you asked. Um, you guys are going to be so sick of me. <laughs> All right, so the, actually, but this is exciting because we get to fall back and we get to do this with, I think, this entire podcast, but fall back on some of our previous podcasts and sort of summarize them and revisit them. But in our second podcast that was titled Another Hyponatremia Case, Bloopers and All, that's a shameless post right there to go check it out for a review. Um, but as a reminder, that um, basically... Um, that calculation helps us to estimate the amount of water that is needed to pee out an osmolar load, like in this um, case where we're going to get, you know, this patient receives a one liter bolus of normal saline. 
But before I get to the calculation, um, we need to figure out the osmolarity of normal saline. To do this, we have to know two things. One, that normal saline, also known as 0.9% sodium chloride, consists of 150 mil equivalents of sodium and therefore also contains 154 mil equivalents of chloride. Um, therefore, combining those two, that is 308 milliosms per kilogram. So, I know you're not sick of me yet. Getting to the calculation part, um, to determine the water that we actually need to excrete the 308 milliosms, we actually have to divide that by the measured urine osm. Uh, so that's 586 milliosms per kilo in this patient, as we previously discussed. So 300, 308 milliosms per kilo divided by 586 milliosms per kilo. That would require approximately half a liter to pee that osm, that sodium chloride solute load out. Um, so basically, that's half a liter to pee it out. And then the other half of that liter, uh, we're going to retain as water. And that means we're going to worsen the hyponatremia. So what I hear you saying, Sophie, is that the ER essentially asked the patient to drink half a liter of water and then sent her home when she was hyponatremic. Pretty much, Sarah. Guzzling water in the ER. <laughs> okay. Except instead of actually guzzling it, they just gave it to her intravenous. Intravenous guzzling. <laughs> right. Right. Okay. Got it. So so they gave her a liter of normal saline. She peed half a liter out with all the salt in it, and she retained half a liter of water. So the patient went home, and she returned the next day complaining of worsening symptoms, including weakness and tremors, and her serum sodium was now... 116. So it had dropped from 121 to 116. She admit, she agreed to be admitted and she was admitted to the MICU and the ER did not give her any um, fluid at this time. Her urine sodium and urinosum now were 168 for her urine sodium and a urinosum of 557. Judy, what do the labs tell you about what's going on with the patient at this time? So these labs really confirm SIDH, the diagnosis of SIDH, because with a very low serum sodium, she has a very high urine osmolality and also a high urine sodium. Um, so uh, it perfectly fits the diagnosis of SIDH. Great. So she was given another liter of normal saline, and her serum sodium decreased then from 116 to 115, and then to 113. And the serum osm, when her serum sodium was 114, was sent and it was 136. Um, Sophie, what happened to her brain when her sodium dropped from 121 to 116 after the one liter she got in the ER? And now um, after her sodium dropped from 115 to 113 after the liter she got in the MICU? I, so the simple answer is that her brain swelled and she's got cerebral edema. But let's just briefly talk about why this happens. Um, to remind everybody, a serum sodium measurement is actually a concentration of how much sodium is in the blood compared to how much water. So hyponatremia is, by definition, an excess of water to dilute the urine. So we know that two-thirds of our total body water is distributed to the intracellular space. If we have an excess of water in our intravascular space, we know that the water is gonna move intracellularly 
following osmotic forces until that equilibrium is reached. And that's going to lead to cellular swelling. And this is going to be everywhere. But really the most deleterious location of this effect is going to be in the brain where our brain cells swell. And we call that cerebral edema. Clinically though, and more importantly, this manifests as nausea, vomiting, confusion, seizures, and even worse coma. Okay, great. So Judy, what protective mechanisms do we have to prevent this rushing in of water to our brains when we become hyponatremic? So your brain is resides in a very um, closed cavity, which is your skull. So there's not a lot of room for your brain to either expand or contract. So any movement into, of water into or out of the brain is not good. So the brain has developed mechanisms to protect against this. So if somebody has chronic hyponatremia, in other words, their serum sodium is low, their serum osmolality is low, the brain will actually get rid of osmolites, which are physiologic cations and organic solutes to help the brain lower its own osmolality so that the brain now has low osmolality, which matches the low serum osmolality. Um, this happens over a period of days, however, so this adaptation does not work if you suddenly drop somebody's serum sodium. Um, in that case, um, if you suddenly drop somebody's serum sodium and the brain does not have time to adapt, to time to get rid of these osmoles, um, the brain is now hypertonic to the plasma and so water will actually rush in from the plasma into the brain and can cause edema. Similarly, in somebody who's chronically hyponatremic, so now their brain has gotten rid of osmoles, their brain osmolality is low, and you suddenly raise their serum sodium, and you raise their plasma osmolality, water will now, the brain is now hypotonic to the plasma, and water will leave the brain um, and move into the plasma. And this um, causes um, something called osmotic demyelination, which is uh, something that is unfortunately irreversible and can cause very significant and profound Okay, so just damage. to summarize, when someone becomes acutely hyponatremic, water rushes into the brain, and that's bad for the brain. And if you raise someone's sodium too quickly, water rushes out of the brain, and that's bad for the brain too. That's correct. Great. Okay, so Sophie... Nephrology was called when her serum sodium dropped to 113. At that time, her uranosm was 672. Her urine sodium was 195. And she weighs about 50 kilograms. So what would your treatment recommendation be at this time? And of note, she's um, gotten only progressively more confused and is now um, more nauseous. Before I move forward, I'm going to make just a quick plug that I think that nephrology probably should have been called sooner. But I'm thrilled that we have been called now so we can actually help with some of this. Um, so first thing I would do is I'd make the patient NPO. They probably, this patient probably already is. She's confused. She's got nausea. But we want to make sure that we kind of close the system and there's no additional water source coming in. The other thing before we go beyond this is place a Foley to monitor the urine output closely. 
But um, more importantly, with somebody who has neurologic changes, like this patient does, and nausea is one of those manifestations, and severe hyponatremia, the goal is to rapidly bring the serum sodium up approximately three milliequivalents. And really, that's not very much, but generally, um, that's thought to be sufficient enough to stop whatever the hyponatremic symptoms are. Um, in this setting, we would use 3% hypertonic saline. Um, and just to emphasize, 3% hypertonic saline is a very concentrated saline. It's not like our 0.9% normal saline that we use for everything else and that we discussed earlier. Um, in this scenario, I typically use approximately 1 to 2 milliliters per kilogram per hour um, for three hours, and really only three hours, and then I will recheck. So stop it at three hours, and you want to recheck labs. Um, and recheck labs is like a serum sodium, a urine osm, and a urine sodium. There are other approaches to this um, which are perfectly acceptable. acceptable. So I do recommend that you choose one, you stick with it, um, and just do one that you can remember and that works for you. So I could sit down, or one could sit down and calculate this, but you know, to be honest, this is actually a very dynamic process, um, and really no one has the time, nor is it practical to sit down and calculate that. So I think it's good to just, you know, one to two mils per kilo per hour for three hours, that should be sufficient, or whatever your um, processes, I think Sarah's got a good one and you can recheck after. Yeah, I the the formula that I use is that one ml per kg of 3% will raise your serum sodium about one milliequivalent. So that's how I calculate it. And that's just my starting point. And then I adjust it um, based on what actually happens with the patient. Um, and one important thing to remember with all these calculations, since we are using um, somebody's weight to do them, is that you probably want to use their ideal body weight uh, versus their actual body weight, um, especially in somebody who may be morbidly obese. Okay, so um, so this patient actually got 3% saline at 50 mLs per hour, so that would have been, she was only 50 kgs, and she got it for three hours, and her, that raised her serum sodium to 116. So, Judy, what is your target serum sodium for this patient in the next 24 hours? So, again, this is something that we've talked about in a previous podcast, but with this chronic hyponatremia, and, again, unless you have very accurate lab data for the preceding 24 or maybe 48 hours, you have to assume that all hyponatremia is chronic. The rate of serum, the correction of serum sodium should be no more than four to six milliequivalents in the first 24 hours. The teaching that you could raise it by up to 12 milliequivalents in the first 24 hours is really outdated and actually dangerous. So please don't do that. Um, in this case, however, we do have some additional lab data because she was in the hospital when, when some of this happened. So we know that some of her drop in sodium was acute. She dropped from 120 to 113 within 24 hours. And so in this case, you could probably safely bring her up back up to 120 in the first 24 hours. Okay, great. Sophie, explain again for our audience why it's so important to use 3% saline and how th using 3% saline is different from using normal saline. Sure. So 3% saline is a much more concentrated sodium solution. So we're going to say it's a lot more salt for a lot less water. 
as opposed to our 0.9% normal saline, which we generally use and she received initially. But that's like very little salt compared to a lot of water. Um, and in somebody who's not able to dilute their urine, they can't get rid of essentially a pretty big water load that we've given them. So we need a concentrated sodium solution to bring the, salt, the sodium level up as opposed to our traditional um, normal saline that we use. Okay, great. So Judy, what are some of your tactics when you're treating someone with bad SIADH and hyponatremia to prevent um, undercorrection, which is not bringing the sodium up fast enough? So to present, prevent undercorrection, it's really important to um, fluid restrict the patient, make them NPO so that you really know exactly what is going into the patient. At the same time, you really want to know what is coming out of the patient, and so that's why, in this case, a Foley catheter and very close monitoring of urine output is really essential. And in, in cases of severe hyponatremia such as this, a Foley catheter is absolutely critical, and you really can't manage a patient safely without it. Um, if somebody is hypokalemic, you can also replace their potassium, which will raise their sodium, and we'll get to why that is in just a little bit. You need to follow somebody's serum sodium very, very carefully. So usually we like to check labs every two hours, um, which requires a lot of blood draws. And so the person needs to have good IV access and ideally a central line to do this. Hint, they should be in the ICU. <laughs> Definitely. And they should be followed by nephrology. Absolutely. So um, Sophie, what circumstances tend to lead to overcorrection, someone's sodium coming up too drastically or too quickly? So I think one of them that is actually a little bit separate when it's not truly an SIADH or somebody has a, um, an overlying um, volume uh, depletion, and sometimes that will actually overwhelm the SIADH, and you might see actually layers of these. But um, if somebody gets volume resuscitated, that will shut off ADH, and then people will just dump large amounts of dilute urine. So that's one. Um, also, if somebody is hypo um, kalemic, and then you replace the potassium while giving hypertonic saline, you certainly can overcorrect. Um, the discontinuation of thiazides uh, will also do this. If we give cortisol replacement in a patient who has adrenal insufficiency, um, and then anybody that's got spontaneous resolution of a reversible cause of SIADH. So Judy, what's What's in your armamentarium if you are concerned about overcorrection of someone's serum sodium? So as we mentioned, um, if somebody's chronically hyponatremic and has a very low serum sodium and you overcorrect them, it can be very dangerous, can cause irreversible neurologic damage. So if they start to overcorrect, um, we can, you can use desmopressin, which seems a little bit counterintuitive, but you can actually give them ADH to completely shut off their urine production. So now if somebody's dumping a lot of very dilute urine, you've stopped that. So you've uh, essentially stopped them from peeing out a lot of water. And then you can give them D5W to again re-lower their uh, serum sodium to a safe level. And I'd like to emphasize that with very, very low serum sodium, people are hyponatremic in the ICU. It requires a lot of patience and it's very difficult to correct somebody perfectly. So they we often end up they often end up overcorrecting a little bit and then undercorrecting a little bit. Um, but the goal is to really, in a 24-hour period, 
not correct any more than four to six mil equivalents. And if I can just bring up really quick, it is a very delicate balance. And if you're planning on giving desmopressin, don't do it without a nephrologist. It does require a lot of guidance. Um, we do a little bit of math to help us determine how much they're actually peeing out, how much water to give back if we need to. So um, if, if that's going to be happening, unless you're incredibly experienced, which I have not experienced someone yet, but knock on wood, because I don't really know that, but I would really recommend having nephrology involved. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so um, before we end this case, I am going to take the opportunity to explain one other concept. We have mentioned um, several times in this podcast that replacing potassium will result in a rise in your sodium. And uh, for those of you who are really nephrocurious, um, I'm going to explain why that's the case. Um, our goal is with these podcasts to not make it too mathematical or too complicated. So if you want to tune out at this point, feel free. <laughs> But for those of you who stick with us, stick with us. It's not that long. You got it. <laughs> Just come, come back in 30 seconds with the learning objectives. If you do maybe, maybe a minute. Maybe a minute or two. But basically, actually, and Judy said this earlier in the podcast, that your plasma osmolality is the same intracellularly and extracellularly because water flows between those two compartments freely. So your plasma osmolality is determined both by your intracellular and your extracellular solutes divided by your total body water. And your primary intracellular solute is potassium, and your primary extracellular solute is sodium. So when your potassium is low, um, so when your total, so when your serum potassium is low, potassium in your cell will actually leave your cell to normalize your serum potassium and to maintain electron neutrality um, and so sodium enters the cell as you raise your serum potassium. So, um, so when you give potassium back to a person who's hyponatremic, the result is that some sodium will come out of the intracellular space into the extracellular space and raise your serum sodium. So that's why those two are so interconnected. And now for our learning objectives, Sophie and Judy. Judy, I'll start. <laughs> um, so giving normal saline can be a bad thing. If you are giving someone normal saline who has SIADH with a urinosm greater than 300, you are giving them free water. Straight to the vein. <laughs> exactly. And they will definitely drop their serum sodium. Um, so another learning objective is acute hyponatremia can lead to brain swelling or cerebral edema, which can be bad. And potassium repletion in the setting of hyponatremia will raise serum sodium. All right. Thanks, guys, for listening. Our one last thing is Judy with our legal disclaimer here. Because I have this strange accent, I always get to do the legal No, sexy, <laughs> sexy. <laughs> <laughs> So this podcast is for educational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the hosts, and this podcast should not be used as medical advice or for treatment purposes. Thank you, all of you, for listening to us. If you have ideas of topics that you'd like us to cover in future podcasts, just um, tweet at us, and we'd be happy to accommodate that. Um, and... Uh, 
thanks again for tuning in. And then we have to thank Seamus Clingscorn for doing our sound editing, Josh Strong for doing our graphics, and the University of Colorado and the VA for hiring us. Yay. Bye, guys. Thanks so much Bye. for listening. Thank you.